And good morning, everyone. This is uh, Palm Sunday. It's one of the treasured days in the church calendar where we once again look at Jesus entering Jerusalem for the last time, marking the first day of the last week of his earthly life as he walked here. Um, The question I have before us all this morning that I want us to think about while you're visiting in different ways is this. If Jesus were to walk down the aisle of this church, just walk right down, would we, number one, recognize him? Would we recognize him? Would we accept him or embrace him? Or would we even potentially resist him? Now, as a church, he would say, well, of course, we would, you know, welcome, welcome, welcome. Well, we're going to see a city, the very city of God, who had the, you know, they had the temple of God inside of it, and God walked amongst them, and they didn't recognize his visitation. There was actually a famous experiment done some years ago. A man was, was playing violin in a busy subway terminal. Uh, if you've been to, you know, to New York City or Philadelphia, and you see these street musicians, you know, his case was open and he was playing along and they filmed it. He had a camera hidden and for hours and hours, people just walked right by him, right? Maybe saw a dollar here, a dollar there, but not a big deal. Nobody really paid attention to him. Turns out the man's name was Joshua Bell, who was one of the world's most famous violinists. Uh, he was playing in that subway a multi-million dollar Stradivarius violin. And the only difference between his performance in that subway and his performance that people pay hundreds of dollars to see was that he was not wearing a tux and was not in Carnegie Hall, right? Um, people walking by him, who knows? Maybe they were one of the people who actually paid money to see him, but he was in a hat, you know, not wanting to kind of hide his face when he was playing, and nobody paid any attention. Could that really happen if Jesus were to walk here, will we be like those people on the subway, not realizing who is playing the music, right? Um, so um, I'm going to just dive into the story. We're going to go backwards. I had planned on not doing that, but um, I, I want to kind of flip my sermon somewhat backwards here. So if you have a Bible, go to page 1040. We've been Luke chapter 19 today. The Red Pew Bible um, in front of you is page 1040. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. We're going to see at the back end of our time, the people whom Jesus just finished ministering to as he walked the earth. But first, I want to look at the city that he walked into, the way he walked into it, the things that uh, Luke is a person who wrote this story, the Gospel of Luke. See what Luke wanted us to know about Jesus as he walked into the city. And then compare those in the city with the people who he just finished ministering to in chapter 18. And I think this will be really instructive for us as a church on Palm Sunday. So beginning in verse 28, this is a word of the Lord. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. 
If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. The first thing that Luke wants us to know is Jesus is walking in Jerusalem. This is also instructive for us, is that he is entering as one who knows everything that's about to happen. We're going to see that his entrance is one of a king, one of authority, but he is displaying his authority even right now by, by telling his disciples, hey, you're going to go, you're going to find this cult. I know where it's at. I know the guy who does it. He's going to let you go because let it go. It's never been ridden on. All you have to say is the Lord needs it and just bring it back to me. He knows what is about to happen. And he's been telling his disciples. Um, he just finished for the third time telling them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm about to die. And they were still just like, what? I don't understand what's going on, right? But he knew his end. He knew what he was doing, and he was going to accomplish it. So Jesus is walking in Jerusalem, number one, as the king who is in charge. In verse 35, the story continues as Jesus is about to get the royal treatment. You know, um, the red carpet, you know, the old Looney Tune cartoons, you know, you know, I guess it's Looney Tunes, I don't know, or whatever, you know, they throw out the red carpet before somebody important kind of walks by, you know. Jesus is about to get this kind of treatment in verse 35. They brought it to Jesus, this, um, this uh, colt. They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Now, as Jesus was coming, there was a crowd that was with him, okay, made up of people at whom he just ministered to, some people that he had just healed, some people that heard the good news of his coming and uh, started following him. Um, as we're going to see, these are a bunch of like ragtag people, all right? These are the people that were the down and outs, the people that were kind of in the trenches of this ancient society. They're the ones that had leprosy that just got healed. They were the ones, the tax collectors. They were the, the poor, the, the blind, the beggars, all those kinds of people whom Jesus ministered to, whom Jesus brought to himself. And that's the crowd as they're going into the very kind of capital of this ancient nation, right? This colony of Rome in those days, Jerusalem, with all the religious leaders, all the, the temple worship, you know, um, all that is there and he's bringing his ragtag crowd of disciples as he's entering into this city. In verse 37, it says, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. They had just seen him do some amazing things and they knew God is here and he's visiting us, right? And they're shouting out and they're quoting numerous kinds of scripture here in verse 38. It says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now the Mount of Olives is just right east of Jerusalem. It's a few hundred feet higher than the city. And so literally he's going down the mountain, as it says, to Jerusalem. And the disciples, it's really interesting. They're echoing something very closely. If you recognize, think of a Christmas story here in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, when the angels announced the birth of Jesus. That's what the angels said. Glory to God. This is Luke 2, 14. It says, glory to God in the highest and on the earth, peace to those whom his favor rests. And they just got finished saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. These disciples understood the good news of the kingdom. 
Their praise was for the miracles that Jesus had done and this crowd was with them and they were crying out saying the gospel of peace is upon us. The same gospel of peace that the angels spoke of upon this guy's birth, it's, it's coming. The very peace of heaven is entering Jerusalem. And that crowd, they understood this and they got it. But we're gonna see there was a few people in the crowd who still had some questions. We're like, I don't think this guy's a real deal. Like, I'm not quite sure. In verse 39, as these people are just, they're praising him. Like they're, they're worshiping this man. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 39, the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now Pharisees, um, they were some of the religious leaders of the day. Think of the local Bible scholar, all right? Um, that's who the Pharisees were. And he's like, Jesus, teacher, like, this is crazy what they're saying. Can you tell them to be quiet? And what does he say? I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And there's, this is where the comparison begins. As we're going to see Luke has been guiding us to this point. The Pharisees, the Bible teachers, the know-it-alls, who had half this thing memorized, half this book memorized, they're the ones you think that are looking at the God-man in the flesh who would have said, this is him. I've been reading about this and waiting for all the prophecies leading up to this day. There he is. But here they are saying, tell these people to be quiet, Jesus. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Is kind of the underlying, you know, jab that they're giving him. This is, you got to listen to what he says. There's, there's, there's some uh, irony and some humor there. Jesus, I think, threw some jokes out sometimes, and he's kind of, as he does so, kind of putting them in their place. He's saying, if they don't sing, the rocks will. In other words, the rocks are seeing something that you're not seeing. These rocks aren't even alive. They're just sitting on the side of the road, and creation gets it, and you don't. And you're the Bible teacher. Don't you see this? You're missing it. And even creation, these inanimate objects, they, they would get it. If these people stopped, they would break out in song. Now the gospel offers the peace of heaven, glimpses of peace on earth. But as these people, they're going to see the city itself of Jerusalem and its inhabitants who ended up rejecting Jesus um, who stared at the face of the Son of God and missed it, it led to the complete and utter lack of peace. Right? Judgment passages may not be comfortable in 2023 because what do we do with judgment? You know, we're the therapeutic culture today. We want to feel good and we got to read this because Jesus, he announces judgment on this city, right? Now, the angels had declared the birth at his birth, peace on earth, right? And peace was supposed to come, but they didn't get it. And what happens, what we're going to see in the midst of this praise, in the midst of being brought into and ushered into the city as the king, right? As they're casting their cloaks on the ground, the same thing they did for King Jehu in, the, in, the, in the, one of the ancient kings of Israel and second kings, like they were repeating this, that one of the, you know, the king is back, the son of David, the kingship is coming back, and this is the Messiah, he's here. In the midst of this tremendous moment in the life of Jesus, he starts weeping because he crests the hill, the Mount of Olives, and if you've, some of you have been to Israel, right? if you've been on the Mount of Olives, you see this beautiful view of the city down below. Here's a few hundred feet up, you see everything on the top. And Luke gives us the imagery that he is, he's cresting the hill. 
and he sees the whole city. And beginning in verse 41, it says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. This isn't just like a, a sniffle, you know? The, the Greek word that was used is like the messy cry, like the slobbery one. Like he's broken. He is heavily, heavily weeping in this moment. And he pronounces, he says, if you, even you, would just hear this voice behind tears. This isn't like a, a, a guy on a chair, you know, like pointing down the people who were less than. Like he is weeping over what he is saying. He says, you, even you, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you. When your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle and hem you in on every side, they will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. 30 years later, from about 66 AD to 73 AD, in that land, uh, the Romans were invaded. The Romans invaded that land. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was burned down with the ancient wonders of the world in the year 70 AD. These are the ancient Jewish wars estimated between 350,000 to 1.1 million people perished in this war. This was no small squabble. This was a massive, massive time of death and destruction in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, you had a chance. You had a chance, but judgment's coming upon you. And keep in mind, this is no secular nation. Right? This wasn't like Israel today, which is a secular. This was a, a nation, an ancient nation that claimed to embrace the God of the Bible. They claimed to be his people. They had their temples set up. All the systems of worship was taking place. Synagogues were all over the land that had their scrolls and read the Bible week in and week out. How was it that it was those people, when God showed up, that they missed him? Because you would think they would be the first ones to spot him, to smell him out, to sniff and say, this is him, this is it. But they missed him. It would be like creating a museum about Tom Hanks or something, right? Famous actor, I don't know, Tom Hanks, showing all of his acting career, all of his roles and everything, and Tom Hanks walks into the museum. And they're like, nah, you're not the real Tom Hanks. And then they kick him out, right? That's kind of what happened here. He's entering Jerusalem as the king, as the Messiah. They're like, no, you're not the real deal. And they end up taking him out and condemning him even to death. But see, Jesus doesn't just weep and then leave. The results of their missing the very God they claimed to worship had affected them. It affected their own worship of God, which took place in the temple. Right? There's a whole system of worship. You can read about it in the Old Testament, um, in the books of Moses, the early books about sacrificial systems and all these things that were taking place. And um, <clears throat> those things had become a little wayward and lost its true focus of God being at the center. And Jesus, wiping off the tears, getting it back together, he enters Jerusalem and he goes straight to this temple. And when he enters the temple, this is not the nice, you know, Jesus we see in our movies who's, you know, all nice and kind of like this is... We see the angry Jesus come out. We see the, the righteous anger of Christ come out as he enters the temple. Verse 45, he enters the temple area. It's this massive complex, right? 
And so he enters that temple area and begins driving out those who were selling. What was going on? Well, in essence, um, if you brought a, a sacrifice to the temple, it would need to be without blemish, as the Old Testament law said. Well, if you're carrying an animal from like the north part of Israel down to Jerusalem, chances are the, you know, the probability of an injured animal or something increases and your sacrifice becoming a blemish before you even get there. And so they found it was prudent. Why don't we just sell animals like in the temple complex to reduce the chances of blemishes happening? All right, that's fine. That actually kind of makes sense. And it's not even a bad thing in and of itself. But good things can become bad things when the motives behind it become bad motives. And so as all the Gospels testify to, these people weren't just selling animals. They were jacking up the prices. They created a whole business, a whole commerce. It's all industry going on in the temple for all the various things to sell to the people, to the pilgrims coming to engage in worship. A whole money-making industry. It's amazing what we humans can make. Um, you know, we can make anything become some money-making industry, can't we? It's fascinating. Well, here they are in ancient times, nothing's changed, taking the worship of God and learning how to flip a dollar doing it. He's not happy about this. So he starts flipping over the tables. Verse 46, it is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. They weren't just resisting him, they were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. The crowds had gathered and they just hung on his words. So rather than embracing the Jesus as the one who the temple exists for, they wanted to kill him. So here's a question I want to go back to now. I'm going to look at the crowds and ask some questions about the kind of people that we can be to hopefully preserve ourselves from committing the same error. Because, like I asked at the very beginning, is it possible, and I hope that we're not too, you know, our hubris isn't, isn't too, you know, strong in our own hearts to think that we wouldn't be like the Pharisees. Of course not. I'd be like part of the crowd. I'd be hanging on his every word just like them. Is it possible that you and I, just like the, the, the majority in Jerusalem, like those religious leaders and people, especially those of us in this room have been following Jesus for some time, is it possible that we could miss the work of God that is taking place right in front of our faces and not even recognize it? Is it possible? Or would we be like those who walked right past, you know, Joshua Bell in the subways, not even realizing there's a guy playing a $2 million Shadavarius and playing some of the world's most prestigious music just right in front of your face. Now here's the answer. Luke already gave us the answer. I went backwards. He gave us the answer in chapter 18. So I'm going to turn to chapter 18 and I'm going to look at various stories and one or two in particular. We can't read all of this chapter. But if you flip the page back, you see, you know, your Bible's going to be divided up a little bit. It had different kind of stories. Um, we're going to see first at the very beginning, because just a little Bible reading hint here, you know. The Bible's big, it's complex. A little hint. When you're reading the Gospels, you don't just pull a story out without first checking the stories around it. Because the writer often, almost every time, he's building an argument. 
he wants to tell us something in particular. And he's been, Luke has already been building an argument for us. And so we just saw the people who rejected Jesus. Let's look at the, look at the ones who embraced him. Beginning in verse 9, okay, there's a parable. I'm going to read this actually, beginning in verse 9. So he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, again, that's the Bible scholars, the teachers, and another a tax collector. And we gotta push pause because tax collector, like, like the IRS or something, we don't like the IRS who does like tax collectors today, but still a very different story than ancient tax collectors, okay? Ancient tax collectors, um, they would take the tax to send it to Rome, but they would freely tack on their 20% for their own pockets. And Rome let them do it. Nobody stopped them. They had permission to do it. And so guess who most people hated? Tax collectors. These are not the most favored people in your town. You did not have a lot of friends if you were a tax collector, okay? Um, you weren't known for you know, garnering popularity. You increased your wealth by unrighteous means. So these are two interesting people that Jesus is comparing, the Bible scholar and that guy, all right? Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Pointing, the guy standing next to him, pointing him out. I'm not like that guy, thank God. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. In other words, this guy has the whole religious thing down. He's got the behavior thing down. He could trick anybody into his sincerity of his love for God. Man, I fast twice a week. All the money that I get, I'm making sure that 10% goes straight back to him. You know, I read my Bible. I pray. Here I am praying in the temple. Like I have my behavior. It's in order. I'm not like those people who are, there's behavior not out of order, thank God. Not like that guy right there. I got it together. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven. Think about that. Can't even look up. But, it, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified or made right before God rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It is these two's, uh, their, their, their disposition toward God that Jesus is pointing out. Nothing's wrong with fasting. Please, like that's great. We're gonna be having some sermons about fasting coming up. That's a good thing for you to do. Prayer is a good thing. Being generous with your money towards God and towards others, that's another great thing. But what can make those great things not great things is the motive of why you're doing it. The motive can change the good behavior into sin, even. If you want to fast, other times Jesus talks about those who are fasting or walking around just like, yeah, you know, don't, I can't eat lunch with you today, I'm fasting, it's okay. I'm just praying today, I'm fasting. Like those kind of people. He's like, that's not why you fast. Right? You, you put, if you're a woman, you put the extra makeup on to hide any kind of like, you know, tired look if you're fasting. You want to hide it. You don't want to tell anybody. So the whole goal was, the goal was connection with God, not to let people know how religious and amazing you are. 
It's the disposition that Jesus is talking about. Now, in modern times, I try my best to think about, like, how can we get this image of this tax collector, right? Because I, it's easy to, to come into a church and to learn the kind of religious game, the, the right behaviors, the right things to do, and, and put on that show and kind of deceive everybody around you into thinking, like, I'm all good, man. I got the church thing down. I'm good. My heart's fine because look what I do. I'm fine. But the people who we wouldn't expect to actually be in the right, in this case, a tax collector, what are some people today? I don't know. Maybe drug addicts, alcoholics, people groups whom the church right now especially are not known to be openly sharing the love of God with, people like transgender people, homosexuals. We know the church is not known in our country for displaying a loving and gracious heart towards them. If Jesus were to tell this parable today, would he be using those names? I think so. Because he's trying to jar us and wake us up. This tax collector is literally just, he has nothing to give. He has nothing to give but a repentant, soft heart as he literally is just beating his breast saying, God, I need mercy. I need mercy. I know my sin. I know how broken I am. I need your grace and I need your mercy. And Jesus says, that's it. This is that guy who is right before God. And as we're going to see in Luke, he's going to tell us, it is that kind of person who sees me. It is that person with that humble heart that if I'm standing before them, they will be on their knees because they're going to see who I am. It's the religious people who tend to, to be thinking that their own actions have made them right that are in danger of missing me. People who think that they're okay. People who think that they're good enough. That they're doing all the right things that I'm fine. Those are the people in danger of missing Jesus if you were to walk down the aisle here in this church. I know all of us are a work in progress, right? We are instantaneous made saints before Jesus, be it our heart still always struggles with that sin. And so what I want to point out to us this morning is once again, if you look in chapter 18, Luke is trying to tell us something. Another group of people, they're the, the unexpected ones that get it. When the Bible teachers and the rulers and the leaders don't, we see children who came to him and his disciples were like, get those kids out of here, shoo them away. And Jesus says in verse 16, no, no, let the kids come to me. Be like them. Be as innocent and as full of faith as these little kids are. Be like them. Don't shoo them away. Unlikely people for Jesus to say, those are good candidates for seeing me because they're coming to me. And you're trying to push them away. Children. Our society has such a small opinion of children. I don't know if you guys knew that or not. Our society today has such a terrible opinion of children and just, they mock children. They're inconveniences. They push them away. They want to hide them in the room. Just get out of here. You know, they don't want to have kids. It costs so much money. This has been the case for, for most cultures. As you see here, get those kids out of here. They're, they're not worthy to be next to Jesus. He goes, oh, you need to be like them, actually. That's what he said in verse 18. So Luke is telling us, the unlikely candidates be like children. You know, the candidate right after this, the rich, young ruler, the rich young ruler, we won't read this whole passage, but this guy who has all the money and all the right behaviors and all the, he's keeping the Bible verses and he says, you know, I want to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, I know your heart is just, you're in love with your stuff. 
giving up your stuff and he's walks away sad not giving it up now if you were alive in that day he should have been the one to get it and he doesn't and then it ends with the blind beggar I love this story right here I love this story in verse 18 this is um, chapter 18 ends with this as you drew near to Jericho a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging and he, hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is passing by. Now he hears this. They're just walking by this guy. Seeing a blind beggar is probably not quite uncommon in those days. But rumor hit this man. Like, I heard this guy heals people. I heard he can work miracles. I heard he might be the Messiah. So as the crowd is walking by and he says, this is Jesus of Nazareth, what does he do? Verse 38, he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now he wants you, Luke wants us to remember the rich young ruler who was just before Jesus and walked away just like, I love my stuff and I'm not ready to give all that stuff up yet. And now we see a beggar who has nothing in poverty and disability. There was no Medicare and other systems in those days to help these people. They were literally just living on people who'd be gracious enough to put a dime in their hand. And he's the one who is crying out, son of David, have mercy on me. In his desperation, he cries out. And what do the people around him do? In verse 39, just like the children and those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Be quiet. This man's busy. Don't yell at him. Shh. He has a mission. We're on the Jerusalem. He has something going on there. Don't shh, leave him alone. Could you imagine? Verse 40. Actually, at the end of verse 9, as they were telling him to be quiet, he had to get louder, right? <laughs> like, be quiet. Ah, have mercy. Like, he's yelling at this point. He's screaming because they're telling him to be quiet. And Jesus hears him. In verse 40, and Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Interesting question. He wants to hear this guy's heart. What are you looking for? Why did you call my name? Why, do you, why are you looking for me? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Verse 42, and Jesus said to him, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave him, gave God the praise. I can keep going. Because right after this is Zacchaeus, the wee little man who had to climb a tree to see Jesus, right? I mean, time and time again, it's the, another tax collector, Zacchaeus, right? Time and time again, Luke is saying, here are the, un, the unexpected people who get it and the ones you would expect who don't get it. So what's the common thread here as we seek to close here in a few minutes? What's the common thread that we're finding here that's missing from the Bible teachers and the rulers and religious people? What's missing is desperation for God. What's missing is awareness of their true need for him. They forgot it. And they learned the religious game. They got comfortable. And they thought that doing those right things just kind of made them right. And they're like, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. And Luke is saying, no, look at that beggar. When's the last time you genuinely found yourself just crying out to God out of need because you just realize how dirty your heart is and you realize how empty your soul is. And even if you know him, there's just like this new awareness of 
man, like I'm just so empty. Like I just want more of him. Lord, have mercy on me. Like when is the last time you found yourself crying out to him? Because rich or poor, it does not matter. It's the desperation that opens our eyes to see who he is. It is desperation that becomes the guardrails for any church anywhere to stay on the kingdom path. It is a hunger for God that keeps a church doing the main thing, like focused on the main thing of following Jesus, of being like him, of doing the things that he did, of loving God and loving our neighbor and resisting what happened in the temple when they became cozy and okay with this beautiful kind of temple they had and just became this prophet engine of making the things of God enrich their own pockets. What preserves us as a church? It's a hunger for God. It's like Zacchaeus who just wants to see him, but he's like four foot two and knows there's no shot at seeing him because he's so small. So all he wants to do is climb a tree just to see him. He just wants to see Jesus. That's it. He's content with just seeing him. Does that, when's the last time you just wanted to see him? He didn't want to ask me for anything. He's like, Lord, I just want to see you. That's all. If I could just see him. And what does Jesus do? Can I have dinner with you tonight, Zacchaeus? And what does Zacchaeus do? Lord, I, I know I'm a tax collector. I've extortion, like extortion's been my middle name for years. I just want to give all that money back, but even fourfold. I want to, get, I want to treat all those people, just re- undo the wrongs that I did and even give them four times the amount of money that I stole from them. And Jesus says, you get it, Zacchaeus. You see me, you understand the good news of the kingdom, you get it. And it's the Pharisees who don't. So um, at this point, we're going to um, take communion. A consistent hunger for Jesus will keep a church kingdom focused. It will keep us kingdom powered. It will keep God near to us. We read that in verse 18 in Psalm 34. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Those who are aware of their need are the ones who get Jesus, are the ones who the Lord wants to draw near to. Do we want to be a church whom the Lord draws near to? Let's walk in humility. You know, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the poor, the meek. Like, these are the people that Jesus says, yes, you, this is a people that I can be with. I want to be a church that we're just, we're, we're marked by this, that we're characterized by these things. Awareness of your need of Jesus brings about holiness. Because when you cry out to him, you begin emptying yourself of yourself. As you're crying out to him, as you're becoming more and more empty of yourself, he gets to fill those very places that just got emptied out. Hunger for Jesus leads to the love of neighbor because you realize just how much love and grace you received through Jesus Christ. How much meaning and purpose and all the joy that you received, you realize it's a gift to be given to others, even at the expense of yourself. That's what happens when you're hungry for Jesus. Hunger for Jesus leads to supernatural empowerment for witnesses. We're driven to bring the good news of Jesus to our neighbors through both word and deed. Church, this holy week, may we enter this week hungry. May we enter this week knowing our need for him, our continual need for him. May we as a church just enter this unique week of the season 
of this year just with open hearts to say, Lord, humble us. Lord, we want to see you in new ways. Help me to understand my own sin and just the glory of the cross, of your death for me. Lord, help me to understand the, the, the need of newness of life in my own heart. Lord, that I may see your resurrection, the spirit offered to me to transform me and to give me a new life in you. Jesus, keep me humble, Lord, before you. That's what we pray that we can bring into this week. I really ask you guys, please come Thursday night, um, Friday night. Come here Saturday as we're fasting and praying for our prayer room. Come here Easter morning. If we open ourselves up to him in need, crying out in desperation for him, not just to come to us, but not just to come to this church, to bring a season of spiritual awakening of the same need just spread about in our community, I'm telling you guys, we're gonna see a unique work of God that maybe we could trace back to Holy Week 2023 as we sought this for our own selves and for our communities. And so I'm gonna call up Pastor Jim now as he's going to uh, lead us into communion and then we're going to uh, have some time for prayer.